And I remember thinking, oh my God, I think I'm born to be a vampire. Melissa Beaupre, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it Cast That Magic Circle Around You? Welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast about life and music. I'm your host, Michael Collins, Aquarius Sun, Aries Moon, Leo Rising. Today's guest is Melissa Beaupre. Melissa Beaupre lives in Toronto, where she works as a proofreader and a copywriter. She loves cats and video games. She once worked as a phone psychic, and she has met the Queen, who was, she reports, totally unaffected by the 35 degrees Celsius heat. Melissa and I talk about tall tales, clinical depression, indigenous identity, dancing, and the apocalypse. I hope you'll enjoy our talk. Hey, Melissa, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our chat. So for people who might not know you, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, where you grew up and your, your background and who you are? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Toronto. My uh, mom grew up in Toronto as well, well, near Toronto. And my my father grew up actually in the Ottawa Valley, which is going to play, I think, a big role in, in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm working in advertising. I work as a copy editor and a proofreader full time. And then I do some copywriting on the side, too. So I get to dabble a little bit in creativity, which is nice. And when I'm not recording podcasts for you, I also volunteer for Toronto Cat Rescue. I'm a cat foster, and my husband and I have been fostering with them for about six or seven years. We we call it our kitten subscription because they send us kittens, and then when the kittens get big, they take them away and adopt them out and send us new kittens. So we're always getting this new influx of kittens into our apartment, which is lovely. That's that's very sweet, but I'm also afraid if the wrong person hears that, it could become some sort of terrible Silicon Valley startup <laughs> where you get a new kitten every three months, like a buy subscription. Yeah, <laughs> do it do it the right way. Foster kittens. Don't don't pay some tech billionaire money to do this. <laughs> Uh, we do a lot of work with feral kittens. We, we love the feral kittens a lot because when you get them at a young age, you can really socialize them and make them into really good house pets and find them lovely homes. Two of our cats that we have were actually ferals as well. And um, they were ones that we raised from a really young age and had to socialize. It's a lot of work, but it's so it's wonderful and, re- and rewarding. And we get kittens around the house, which is great. Yeah. Who doesn't like kittens? Who doesn't like kittens? (laughs) So why don't we get into your first song? Because it does tie into, as you were saying, the Ottawa Valley. Yeah. This is, uh, well... Why don't you tell the listener what it is before I say anything? Uh, sure. My my first song is uh, Big Joe Muffra by Stompin' Tom Connors. On the river on a water, the best man we ever saw was Big Joe Muffra, the old folks say. Come and listen and I'll tell you what the old folks say. And he say Big Joe put out a forest fire, halfway between Renfrew and Old Ironbriar. Stompin' Tom is a Canadian musician. He's a folklorist. He's... Gosh, I don't even know how to describe his style. It's it's basically it's country music, but it's a lot of folk music as well. And he's got a lot of songs that are tell a lot of Canadian regional stories and tales. He's got ones everywhere from the East Coast to the West Coast. And Big Joe Muffer in particular, I happen to really love this song because it's about the Ottawa Valley and it's about um, this larger than life kind of Paul Bunyan figure on the Canadian frontier called Big Joe Muffer. And it's about all these places that I know fairly well that part of my family grew up in and stuff like that. So I think 
this is going to be a very sharp divide between Canadian listeners and listeners from the rest of the world. And yes. I'm sure pretty much every Canadian listener will have heard of Stomping Tom, if not heard him. And people who are not Canadian will probably have no clue who he is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's very much a Canadian phenomena. I should also point out, too, that it's a very Anglo-Canadian phenomena. He's mm. not very well known in French Canada. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't really talk a lot about French Canada. So we're talking specifically kind of the Anglo-Canadian experience here. Two solitudes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, and I mean, I know, I mean, the two songs of his that I'm most familiar with are probably Bud the Spud from the Bright Red Mud, which is Prince Edward Island and Sudbury Saturday Night, which is Sudbury. Mm -hmm. So this is Ottawa, and this was a song I hadn't heard before. And as you say, it's like a Paul Bunyan sort of larger-than-life figure. The song is about his uh, heroic exploits, about how big and powerful and strong and manly he is. Yes, yeah. yeah. So was this a figure that exists in folklore, or did Snob and Tom invent this guy? Well, so uh, Big Joe Muffereau is actually a historical figure. Um, he's, he was actually a, a French-Canadian uh, folk hero. Um, he comes, the name was a, an Anglo corruption of Montferrat, ah. which was a good French-Canadian name. And his family was, was on the other side of the Ottawa River in Quebec. And his father and his grandfather were supposed to be these really large men who were part of the fur trade and voyageurs and stuff. And uh, Big Joe, who was Big Joe Mufferall III, I guess, um, he was uh, known quite well in, in the area for, for a number of things. He was known as a really big fighter. Mm -hmm. uh, fighting was a big part of uh, sort of the... Well, I mean, I want to say of the culture, but it was sort of a, I, you know, it, it was fighting. It was fighting. A lot of his exploits that they talk about are him, you know, beating fighters that would come from all over the region and all over, like even in the U.S. would come up and meet him and, and box with him in, in pubs and in bars and stuff. Mm. But he was also involved in the in the timber trade. And uh, anyone who lives in the Ottawa Valley on either side of the river has family or has has myths have grown up with myths about the timber trade and the log drivers so what era are we talking about so we're talking um about the early to mid 1800s that he was that he was around okay okay so a lot of his a lot of his stories are actually french canadian stories about some of his exploits and what i find really interesting about this song in particular stomp and tom isn't using he isn't referencing any of the french canadian folklore about him he's actually listing off uh, Anglo folklore about him. So stuff that's written by the English speaking people in the Ottawa Valley, and, which I find really fascinating because that was all stuff that was created about him long after his death. So like we're talking about folklore that was being written in, you know, the 30s, the 40s and stuff about him. Well, the, the stories in the song are not very credible, I must say. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> they do slightly, uh, you know, a little bit of fancy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. Why do you think that is? Is it just that Stomp and Tom couldn't speak French and wasn't interested in learning? Or yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he couldn't speak French. Um, yeah, I, I should say I don't know if he could or not. Yeah, I don't actually know that or not. Um, it's possible though that those were the ones that had the wider circulation um, in around the fifties and sixties. There were a number of books written, sort of like small local things. That I don't think ever made it big, but were considered part of the folklore of that area. There was a, a couple of books published called Tall Tales of Big Joe Muffera and even Taller Tales of Big Joe Muffera. And they were more kind of like children's book, but also kind of a, a repository of folklore about him. Mm. Um, there's a really great book that was published in, I think, the 70s called um, Giants of the Ottawa Valley. And he features in it. And she's sort of the, the author lists off a lot of the posthumous 
tales that were written about him. And some of them, I think, came from this settler colonial mentality in the Ottawa Valley, mm-hmm. where, because if you listen to the song, he a lot of the thing, the exploits that he does actually physically carves and changes the landscape. Yeah, he creates the Rideau Canal. He makes the Rideau Canal. He, he covers a, a fish over with Mount St. Pat, which is, a, a well, a people in the West will, will laugh at our idea of a mountain, but it's a, basically <laughs> a big hill outside Calabogie, which is about, about an hour away from Ottawa. And uh, on the top of that hill is actually like a, a well, like a spring, and it's actually a sacred site. Like the, it's, it's got like a little shrine there, like a Catholic shrine there and stuff like that. So I think it's really interesting because it's this sort of colonial i this this english colonial ideal of idea of somebody of, of a white settler coming in and making something of the land where as though it was a blank slate before they arrived there which of course is a, a theme that you see recurring over and over and over again uh when you do colonial or post-colonial studies um you see this idea of the the, the europeans coming over and forming this otherwise formless land so you mentioned that you grew up in Toronto, but that your father is from Ottawa. So uh, that makes me think of two questions. The first being, does Stomp and Tom have any songs about Toronto? Oh, gosh. I I think he does. <laughs> I almost want the answer to be no. I, <laughs> you know what? I'm pretty sure he does. And I would have to go back and look at that. I'm 99% sure he does. <laughs> Larry, the latte sipping elitist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm pretty sure he does. And Mm -hmm. and I can't remember it now. But he's great because he has all these stories about small towns in in across the country. He's got one called um, The Man in the Moon is a Newfie, which Mm -hmm. is which is fabulous. Um, Of course, he's got Bud the Spud, which is great. We used to sing that around the campfire all the time when I was a kid. But the one this one in particular means a lot to me. Yeah. I suppose because of the connection to your father. Yeah, because of the connection to my father and because of the connection to this area that I that I know really well. So did you spend a lot of time in the Ottawa Valley when you were growing up? Uh, not so much when I was younger. I've spent a lot more as I've been older. So my father was from, uh, he was born, I think, just outside of Armprior. Uh, Armprior, for those who aren't familiar with the geography, is about an hour sort of northwest of Ottawa. And it's uh, it's near the Ottawa River. Um so he was he was born there. Uh, his he was born to a mom that was very very young. I think she was about fourteen or so when she, when she had him, and he was raised by his grandmother for the first like ten years on his of his life, living in this like log cabin on a farm uh, in in the middle of the bush. And he grew up working on farms, running around the wilderness. Um, eventually, his mother got married, and he ended up moving in with her when he was a bit older. But their relationship was always very strained. And so by the time he was about 16 or 17, he moved out. My mom actually met him. She grew up in Woodbridge on a on a pig farm. <laughs> and so they were both sort of like farm farm folk. And the way my mom met him was they she had gone up to the Ottawa Valley area with a girlfriend of hers to go to a cottage. And that's where they met. And they kind of fell in love very fast. Uh, they got married at like 19. Mom moved up there to Renfrew. She left high school when she was about 16 and moved up to Renfrew with him. Mm. And they lived in Renfrew for about, I think, about seven or eight years they lived there. And it was a, it was a big change for mom because even though she was from Woodbridge, which at the time was farmland. It was just farmland. Now it's all a big suburb of Toronto, but back then there was nothing there. There was farmland and horses and cows and stuff and pigs. So when she moved up there, 
uh, to her, it was like moving into the middle of nowhere. To my to my dad, I think he always saw her as the city girl, <laughs> even though she grew up on a pig farm. So the people that that were in his family sort of saw her as this like strange city girl come up there. But they they lived there for about seven or eight years, and my mom loved it up there. And they they used to go fishing and camping. They would drive around and just you know go to a bridge and and go skinny dipping off of it. And she really really loved it there. And when uh, a few years before I was born, they wound up moving back down to Toronto. And that's where I was born, was in Toronto. But we would go up there when I was a really little kid and we would go visit and to usually take the train up there because the train ride up there is just absolutely beautiful. Mm. But I don't think my dad ever really adapted to being in the city. And on top of that, both my parents were really young when they had me. And I think my dad had a lot of sort of continuing issues that were unresolved from his childhood. And so by the time he was, by the time I was about four or five years old, I don't think he could handle the city anymore. And he ended up leaving my mom. So he wasn't in my life actually for a huge chunk of time. Mm. So the way I got to know my, my dad was, was really through stories that my mom had told me, which for the most part, she, you know, she's as angry as she had a right to be about him. She always treated him well in stories about him. So I did get a good sense of who he was, mm -hmm. not like a, a bitter, angry sense of who he was. She was, she did a very good job in being fair about that. But when she did marry, she married my stepfather and my stepfather was, uh, he was a music junkie and his parents had a cottage we used to go to all the time and we would have bonfires every weekend and he would pull out his guitar and he knew all the Stomp and Tom songs. And so he and my mom were teaching them to me. So we would sing those around the campfire. Um, the one I sang the most was actually Bud the Spud, but <laughs> the one I loved the most was uh, Big Joe Muffra because mom would tell me all these stories about the Ottawa Valley and we would sing this really great song that had all the place names that I recognized and stuff. And then it wasn't until I was I was much older, I was approaching my 30s when I actually did get back in touch with my biological father. And we reconnected, which was really nice, but it meant that I got to spend time in that area again, finally. And it was almost like coming home in, in a strange way. I, I absolutely love going up there now. I could spend forever just driving back roads in the Ottawa Valley and seeing all these little tiny places on the map that have like one or two houses and, and but have like this deep, deep, deep history behind them. So it's, it's my husband and I still go camping up there at least once a year. We try to go. And it still is this kind of like semi-magical, semi-mythical place in my mind where I know that part of me comes from there. But also it's just, it makes for really good tales, it makes for really good folk tales. My, my husband actually, he's, he's very musical, but he never listened to Stomp and Tom growing up. So he didn't know, he wasn't familiar with any of these songs, which is kind of funny. And um, the first time I ever played him Stomp and Tom was actually this past summer, we were on a road trip and I put this song on there. And um, my, my biological father passed away very suddenly about two years ago. And it was really hard on me when, when that happened, a lot of mixed emotions. So I, I've, when that song came on, on our playlist, and we got to the to the line that's about the Mississippi River around Carlton Place, all of a sudden, I'm driving along and all of a sudden, I just burst into tears without even realizing it. And um, I ended up sort of explaining the song to him. And, and so it has, uh, it still has like an emotional pull for me, that song. Uh, it makes me think of him um, in a good way, though, in a good, in a really good way. It's interesting to me, how you talked about how you got to know your father largely through stories because he wasn't in your life for a lot of your childhood. And that 
makes me think about how this is a story song that is basically yeah. about getting to know this figure through like the accumulated narratives about him yeah yeah it's, it's sort of a nice mirror of the folklore and the real life it is yeah yeah and not just from my mom too but like my my family really liked him my grandparents especially adored him mm -hmm. and they told me stories as well and so it was it was neat reconnecting with him like seven years ago and sitting down and telling him these stories that he was also telling me at the same time <laughs> like oh i remember this time with your grandparents that i tried to light a fire with lighter fluid and had no eyebrows after and stuff it was great hearing those stories said back to me by the you know knowing that they were real which is really cool so not everyone gets stories about them so the fact that there are stories about him makes me think that he must have been a character he was, he was definitely a character. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, he was I'm sure we're going to hear more about him later on. Yeah. Do you feel ready to move on? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay, great. So what song is up next? So the next song um, is not continuing any theme whatsoever. <laughs> it is The Becoming by Nine Inch Nails. So this is indeed a bit of a tonal shift. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, just slightly, just slightly. <laughs> so uh, Nine Inch Nails, huh? <laughs> Nine Inch Nails, yeah. Uh, I really liked Nine Inch Nails when I was a teenager, but I'm interested in the story of how you came to discover the band and take to it. I suppose maybe it might be too strong to say identify with it, but maybe not. So you can tell me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, I'm not a massive Nine Inch Nails fan, but they have a few albums that I really love, and The Downward Spiral is probably i still think is their best album it is probably my favorite album of all time wow with the caveat that you have to listen to it in order from beginning to end in one go because it's almost like one continuous song it's mm -hmm. so good well i would argue that it's something is working as an album that should be yes. the case because otherwise yes. it's just a collection of very good songs exactly yeah mm -hmm. exactly yeah and this is uh this is a really good example of that so the first the first I had ever heard of Nine Inch Nails, um, this is going this is going to reveal something of my age. When I was around thirteen or fourteen, I think was when this album came out, and I didn't. I was at the point where I guess as a teenager, like you start building or expressing your identity through music in a mm -hmm. big way. And up to that point, the music that I had listened to had mostly been stuff that my parents played, um, in which case it was either like Ozzy Osbourne or smooth jazz. There was sort of no in between. Um, and I didn't have like a huge amount of friends in school. I was kind of a loner. I had like one or two friends and the stuff that they listened to, I, it just didn't strike a chord with me. So do you remember Columbia House? I do. Okay. I used to always sit in the passenger seat of the truck after dad took, went to get the mail. And I would like look at the Columbia House flyer and be like, I want to do this. And my parents were always like, no, it's a scam. You're not doing it. <laughs> I never gained the strength to rebel and sign up for Columbia House. You did? I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my parents saw right through that scam. <laughs> and um, I was like, mom, I can get so many free. It was cassette tapes too at that time. Was the, I didn't even have a CD player yet. Uh, I was like, mom, I could get so many cassette tapes. This is amazing. So she said, okay, okay, I'll do it. But you have to pay for the, for the, the tapes that were coming. So I remember filling out that form. I think you had to like write a, like check boxes or something like that to check off. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I put, I had to get like 10 or something like that. And I think I filled like half of it. And I was like, oh gosh, I've run out of music that I even know. <laughs> so I started asking friends and uh, I asked a friend of mine, I was like, what's, what's, we were both like total nerds too. We were, we were totally the geeks and like the, the debate club, chess club type geeks. And I was like, what are some cool rock bands? And she's like, I hear Nine Inch Nails is great. And I was like, okay, I'll order the Nine Inch Nails. So, <laughs> I'm imagining the scene and it's so painfully dorky it's in my memory. So painfully dorky. Yeah, it's bad. Oh my God. So so I ordered that tape and it, and it arrived and, um, and I didn't get it quite at first. I didn't really listen to it because like the first, the opening of this album is, is difficult to get into if you've never listened to industrial or if you mm-hmm. haven't listened to a lot of it. So, um, I didn't, I kind of like shelved it for a little bit. And while I listened to something, probably something stupid like Aerosmith or something like that. And, um, it was around the same time that I discovered Anne Rice and um, I was reading like Interview with the Vampire and I remember thinking, oh my God, I think I'm born to be a vampire. Yes. And this is what what spoke to me deeply in my soul. So around the same time that I was reading this, this Anne Rice, discovering like, God, I want to be a vampire and buying black lipstick before I even knew what like goth was. And then I guess one day I must have turned this, this album on just to give it another try and started enjoying it mm-hmm. and then enjoying it more and more and more. And the first moment I remember actually really connecting with the album was we were going to visit my great grandparents up in Mount Forest, which is about an hour and a half north of the northwest of the city of Toronto. And it was in December. That's in a region of, of Ontario, of southern Ontario, that gets a lot of snow, a lot of really heavy snow, like from November to like April. And we were, so we were in the car and I think we were going up there and then we were driving home the same night from this Christmas party. And there was a really bad blizzard, a really, like a really, really heavy snowstorm. And so it took us something like four hours to get home. Uh, I was alone in the back seat and I had this on my, on my Walkman, my cheap Sony Walkman. I remember having the headphones in and listening to it and kind of laying on the back seat bored because we were taking so long to get home. But and I just, I must have played that album on repeat about three or four times during that, during that whole car ride home. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is so deep and dark. I love it. This is like vampires in music for me. I mean, that's true. I mean, which is true. Yeah. And it was just, it, it spoke to me on this other level. And it was mm-hmm. like, it was angry and it wasn't. It was melodic without being like recognizable instruments. Like I knew that there were drums in there and there was guitar in there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, boy, there were a lot of drums in there. But there was a lot of like clashing of metal and these grinding noises, and it was just fantastic. Yeah. And it's just so so it struck, it changed something musically in me. And that was kind of the moment I got into like industrial music. Trent can croon as well as scream. He can, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I actually think that this is a very strongly melodic album uh, beneath the production, which really fights against it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is very melodic. Yeah. And it's it's like I said, when you the opening to the album even is is very it kind of draws you in with with melody, even though it's weird sounds making that melody. Mm-hmm. Um, it It is a really beautiful album from beginning to end. So I find it very interesting that um you got into Nine Inch Nails basically on the advice of a friend when you're yes. filling out your Columbia Records sign up. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that like you weren't familiar with like Closer or Hurt or any of the singles or anything like that. 
No, um, I actually, I never really got into their singles a lot. In my head, I wanted to know, like, did 14-year-old you go like, Mom, I want the I Want to Fuck You Like an Animal album. (laughs) (laughs) So no. You know what's really funny is that my parents never had a problem with me listening to music that was like R-rated, like for lyrics and stuff like that. They never had a problem with me for that. I think it's because they listen to like such heavy rock and stuff like that my my parents were my parents liked to drink and party and play loud music and stuff like that and and I was like this this quiet child who would sit at home and read and my mom my mom tells this one story about me when when I was about 14 or 15 they went out to a party and I stayed home alone and she called me to check up on me and she's like oh what are you doing and I said oh I'm just laying in bed reading the bible cuz I never <laughs> read the bible before and I was curious I wanted to know what was in it sure <laughs> Absolutely. It's a, it's a very important foundational text for Western culture. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, and I grew up in a very atheist household, so this was like very strange behavior. Mm-hmm. But my my parents, I would say my parents were partiers and they, they you know, my stepdad had tattoos. They they played like hard rock music. They, they drank. I mean, I know they smoked weed and stuff. And uh, so I had like nothing to rebel against when I was a teenager. I not, They left nothing for me to rebel with. So getting into Nine Inch Nails was just staying true to your family's tradition. It was just staying true to, yeah, it was like my family roots, like my people, right? So I had nothing left to rebel with, so I became an academic because that was literally the only rebellion left to me. (laughs) Well, you know, teenagers need to strain against constraints somehow. exactly. I want to talk about The Becoming in particular. Yes. So The Downward Spiral is like your most favorite album, and it has this very sort of influential place in your life mm-hmm. and you know you formed your teenage identity around Anne rice and wanting to be a vampire and oh god, yes. liking trent reznor and probably a lot of leather and eyeliner i guess maybe yes oh god leather and eyeliner <laughs> yes. yes i still i still kind of go weak in the knees when i see a guy wearing eyeliner i still it, it makes me shiver a bit <laughs> mm-hmm. i uh you're not wrong <laughs> uh anyways uh i was interested though what made you pick this track from all of the ones that are on the album this is another al- album in particular this song that my husband and I like listening to on road trips and it's again we have to listen to it from beginning to end kind of unpacking this album um, a lot of it is about sort of this slow descent into depression and suicidal ideation and the becoming in particular um, is really this sort of I feel like this this pivotal song in the album where it goes from being depressed and self-harming and self-hatred to getting to a place where you're so deep in depression that your feelings just turn off completely as almost like a a defense mechanism for your soul. When I was a teenager um, uh, was when I was first diagnosed with with really severe clinical depression. Some of it was from my childhood. My stepfather, um, as much as he tried, was a fairly abusive, verbally abusive man. Mm -hmm. And I carried that a lot with me, obviously, as a, as a teenager. Um, when you go through that kind of thing at, at a point when you're forming your personality, it, I think it does a lot of damage to the way that, you, you know, your neurons are firing and your neurons are, are receiving information. Um, so it was around when I was 12 or 13, I think, that I was first really struggling with depression. And I think I was finally diagnosed around 15 or 16. And I had was in psychiatric treatment for for quite some time because of it. And The Becoming was the first song that I ever heard that really, from a, a lyrical point of view, 
expressed what I felt and what I was going through emotionally. So not only was it like really hard and and cool to listen to and dark, but it was also when he sings at the end, it won't give up. It wants me dead. God damn this noise inside my head. He starts singing it softer and more melodically. And then it goes up to a scream at the end. And it reminds me, um, of the cyclical thoughts in my head of like self-harm and self-hatred or, you know, this terrible thing going wrong. The, the way that this kind of depression eats at you and eats at you and eats at you and won't, it won't give up. It wants you dead. You know, it won't give up. It wants you dead. It's like this noise that's constantly with you. Yeah. And so this was the first time I'd ever seen that raw pain in, in a, in a song form. And, you know, it was a bit, it was a totally self-indulgent thing. Like, you know, I'm a teenager, I want to mope, but it was also the first time I'd seen this being able to be expressed mm-hmm. verbally and, and musically. Yeah. I think it's good too to draw a distinction between sort of typical teenage mopey like things that we can giggle at because we've all been you know whatever and actual like mental health like there are teenagers who have real depression and it's a real serious issue yeah. and like that's not something to laugh at uh, yeah. whereas like oh I'm a sad teenager can be you know like, yeah yeah and I and I do absolutely have my moments where I'm like oh I just want to mope for the sake of moping mm-hmm. but I really did struggle in my teenage I still struggle today with depression and yeah. uh this was the first time that I saw that I really understood that someone else could deal with that too, or could go through a similar uh, a similar experience that I had been going through. And so this this song in particular kind of allowed me a way to speak about it, as opposed to just having it inside me all the time. I had to look it up. It's in a 13-8 time signature. I thought it was in a weird time signature. It is, which just fits in perfectly as well. It's it's It has this erratic beat uh-huh. that if you're used to uh, either double time or triple time, you know, like 99% of Western music is in, then like the fact that it throws this extra eighth note in every second measure, more or less. Yeah. If, like, if it, like yeah. try walking to this song. It's impossible. Well, like, trip up. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah. Like there, there's this extra beat that comes in that sort of throws everything out of joint yeah. basically yeah. every every measure. Like, yeah. So like it can't find a rhythm, which is yeah. just this lovely musical metaphor for the lyrical content. Gosh, I'd never even thought of that before too. It can't find its rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it it's really great. is. It really is. It's a great yeah. song. Why don't you tell our listeners what we have next? All right. So this is this is the point in the in the podcast where I turn your house into a goth club. I'm so excited. <laughs> so this next song is by VNV Nation. It's called Standing. Oh gosh, it's so good. I I sprout eyeliner when I listen to this song. <laughs> My hair stands up on end and becomes like like uh, teased and and hard. I'm hoping I listen to the right version because lyrically, absolutely, I get the goth. And maybe mm. I didn't go to enough goth clubs because there weren't any in Newfoundland when mm. I was growing up. I don't know if there are now. I'm gonna guess maybe not because it does seem like they were more of an 80s and 90s thing. Um, Although I could be wrong, but uh, to me, there's there's a 
hearty dose of 90s dance in here as well. Yeah, it is very... It, I remember a friend of mine who was in the goss scene, um, both of us were were big on it, saying to us, you know, you're, we're basically listening to dance music right now. Yeah. And I was like, I'm okay with this. I'm okay yeah. with it. I love it. I'm okay with it. I mean, I cut my musical teeth on listening to, in Toronto, what were like pop radio stations in my middle school years. Mm-hmm. So AM 680, which then became AM 640. Um, and they were the ones that, that had all the like, you know, CNC music factory and stuff like that on it. So that was, that was my first introduction to like electronic music. And then, you know, and then I I got a better introduction with, with like Nine Inch Nails. And then VNV Nation is what you, you would call uh, EBM or electronic body music. I think one Hmm. of your previous guests had talked about EBM Lotion, I think had. Yeah. Lotion mentioned this and I was like, I want to look into that because on me, I actually didn't. So here we go. I'm, I'm going deeper into it. Thanks to you. Oh, good. Oh, good. (laughs) It's a, it's a great place. Mm -hmm. So this song, there's a number of versions of it. Um, I mean, with electronic bands, they, they tend to do like 50 remixes of songs. So the, but the main version of standing is from their album called empires, which is from, I think 1999, I think. This is, it's still a dark song, but it's also, there's something a lot happier about it. I feel like the beat is much more upbeat, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yep. So out of high school, I think I I would have been about 19 or 20 when this album came out. At the end of high school, I started dabbling in neo-paganism and Mm -hmm. I eventually got involved in a group that did, uh, that, that, um, had an affiliate, an affinity for Celtic gods. And so I was in this pagan group for a number of years. And it was the first time I'd really met people who had been university educated because I didn't go to university right out of high school. I barely finished my grade 12 um, because I had, again, I was struggling a lot as a teenager. My parents, uh, my parents and my stepfather were not, they, they were high school dropouts. So I had nobody around me that had been to university. So this was the first time that I'd met people who were university educated and they were a bit older than me and they accepted me as one of their own. And I was like, oh my God, these people are so smart. They're so like sophisticated. Like they listen to CBC and they read like the global. <laughs> In mail. It was it was fascinating. And so one of the things that they that they introduced me to was uh, going out to some of the goth clubs in Toronto. And there was Toronto has a, I, I believe there's still a vibrant goth scene here. Um, at the end of the 90s and early 2000s, it was it was fantastic. You had a ton of clubs. Um, you had Anarchist Cocktail, which was a short lived one. There was Sanctuary, the Vampire Sex Bar, which was like sort of the pinnacle of gothiness. There was uh, there was a bunch of them, and I used to go to all of them. And this song was, VNV Nation was sort of a, a mainstay of all these clubs. And Standing in particular was one of my absolute favorite songs to dance to. This came on, you'd make a beeline for the floor? This came on, I would drop my drink and be in the <laughs> middle of the dance floor. And I think all of my friends would be too. So where this links into the, the neo-paganism thing, there's actually, there's a connection here. Um, one of my best friends who was part of the, the coven that I was in, um, he and I used to go dancing like every weekend. We would be there together and um, along with all of our friends. This was the first time that I ever actually started coming out of my shell because to get me to dance on the dance floor was incredibly difficult. I had a hard time at that point even going into like restaurants and stuff by myself to meet people because I had such really bad social anxiety. So the thought of dancing was like, no, you can't get me on a dance floor. Like I'll look like an idiot. I can't do it. So one day he dragged me out onto the dance floor and I just started dancing and I'm, I'm sure I looked terrible, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. 
And then I really started dancing. And then you couldn't get me off the dance floor after that. I'd be on there all I wouldn't even drink. I would just dance the whole night. Absolutely fantastic. So I remember being on the dance floor with him one night and we were we were, you know, we were always talking about paganism and pagan beliefs and stuff. And I remember him saying to me, this this was this incredibly powerful moment for me. He said, Do you notice that when we dance? Do we all have these like circles around us when we dance that nobody seems to come into? The dance floor would be empty or the dance floor would be packed, but we would almost have this like invisible shield around us. Boy, I've been in some gay clubs where I wish that was the case, but I know what you're saying. <laughs> and, well, it was like, and it wasn't, a sh- it wasn't a shield because we were like flailing our arms so no, much no. because a lot of goth dancing is arm flailing basically. Yeah. <laughs> but you're projecting your energy into the space around exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He said, it's like, we're projecting our energy. He goes, when you get out on the dance floor, you cast that magic circle around yourself and nobody can step in it. That's your power right there. Yep. And that's how it felt on the dance floor for me every single night. And so this song in particular reminds me of being out on the dance floor and dancing and feeling for the very first time in my life a sense of joy. It was the first time I remember feeling really, truly joyful, like I was connected to something, that something good was happening and there was goodness in the world. It's surrounded by all these people in like black PVC and like chains and eyeliner and stuff and this thumping beat. There was this almost joyous release, like a, like a ritual happening or like ritual chant or something. I wanted so badly to just freeze those moments and just feel them forever because they were so good. And they were so the opposite of things I had felt through my whole life struggling with depression. So he's got this line, um, fighting time so hard, I pray that this moment lasts forever. And I mean, the whole song is super cheesy, but it's also like so poignant for me that I just, I wanted to freeze that time and live in that moment of joy forever. And it was incredible. And I craved it every week. And so I would go dancing every weekend. Not even to drink, just to dance. There's so many things in what you've said. Um, <laughs> I, I, I respond, I had a neo-pagan phase around the same time in my life. Awesome. Um, and so I totally can speak the language. And um, I'm, I love that neo-paganism is this sort of mixture of like new and ancient. And yeah. like you're talking about the repetitiveness of the rhythm and dancing. I mean, these are spiritual practices that way predate Christianity, like dance and sort of repetition, rhythm, things like that, chanting, um, drums, sacred drums, things like that. Ancient, ancient spiritual practices. But also like this music could not have existed 30 years ago. Like, yes. It is yeah. on the cutting edge of what we can do. It is, it is synthetic. It is technological. And like that is such a nice um correspondence to what neo-paganism was as i understood it yeah much of neo-paganism is really just stuff that's happened in the last hundred years yeah really i mean the mm-hmm. whole wiccan thing is just ceremonial magic that's what it is and that's only about 100 years old or so yeah yeah um but it draws on something much deeper and i still i'm no longer active but i still carry a lot of pagan idea and identity within me i'm i'm very polytheistic um i think it's why i'm drawn to catholicism because catholicism to me is just fancy paganism <laughs> it's like look at all these saints these are like gods <laughs> i get this it's exactly i i so agree it's it's a backdoor way of sneaking polytheism into monotheism yeah yeah totally and there are a lot of pagans that i met that were that were former Catholics. 
mm-hmm. it feels like it was kind of a natural transition for a lot of them. Um, my family's not remotely Catholic. My dad's family is, but I mean, I was not raised yeah. with that. You were saying um, that your family was actually uh, fairly atheist. Do you think that you adopting a spiritual belief I mean, it clicked with you in a way that was very meaningful, but do you think there was an element of sort of rebellion and and searching for something that wasn't in the family culture? Yeah, you know what? I hadn't really thought of that before, but I think so. Um, I mean, none of us were, we never went to churches or anything. My grandparents never went to churches. My great, great, my great grandmother was fairly religious, but it was never something that was passed down in the family. Um, I think, you know, it was when I was about eight, my aunt got married in a church, but it was just more for the ceremony than the actual like religion. And it was really strange being in a church. So yeah, like I kind of wonder, because I'd been seeking something since I was a child. I had, I had sort of had these polytheistic leanings since a child. And, you know, like I said, I, I told you that story about being at home at like 14 or 15 in bed, reading the Bible while my parents yeah. were out partying. Um, like I was always seeking something. I also, the neighborhood in Toronto that I grew up in was uh, very Jewish Orthodox neighborhood. So a lot of my neighbors were very religious and and practicing. And so I grew up with going to school with friends that were devoutly devoutly Jewish. And and, um, so I was sort of like, religion was this thing outside of the the family, I guess, like you said, that that kind of drew me in. I guess it, I guess in a way it was sort of a, a type of rebellion. Mm. I mean, it, it can be both. It doesn't have to be either or. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Because, <laughs> I, 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 again, I don't want to like map my own story onto yours, but this is very similar to my experience. My parents weren't like militantly atheist, but we never went to church. Uh, I was nominally Catholic, but like I didn't receive any of the sacraments after baptism like i never got first communion and what have oh, you yeah yeah and like i can remember i was really into reading the bible as well when i was in grade four <laughs> or grade five because it was like oh here we go but um and i used to, i used to pray to god not to cause the apocalypse to happen when i was still a child because i thought that was unfair <laughs> <laughs> You wanted to wait until you were fully adult to experience it, or well, it was like, well, I'm, I'm, want... I'm 11, and if the world ends now, what? Like, that's really not fair. I didn't even get to drive a car. Like, exactly, come on. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and I, I came into neo paganism because, uh, like yourself, like the polytheism, the sort of connection of spirituality and sexuality. You know, I was very, I, I had a very strong libidinal sort of drive from my mid-teens onwards and like making sense of that is sort of a task so i don't know i don't want to make this about myself but absolutely like it was like i wasn't going to start attending like an evangelical church because they really that was not my style in the least but neo-paganism fit me nicely but i was looking for something like that yeah and i kind of grew out of it because i realized when i was i guess about 20 or so that if I thought like Christian beliefs and so forth were illogical, then I was like, well, so are the neo-pagan ones. <laughs> so <laughs> they don't I, even have, they don't have even have centuries of doctrine behind them. They just, you know, <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was yeah. like, I, you know, I sort of fell into a lazy agnosticism then. Is that the case for you or? Yeah. You know what? In a lot of ways it is. Um, in a lot of ways it is. Yeah. I, the same way. Um, I, th- I think I also grew sort of out of it because the people that I was working with, um, as with a lot of small religious communities, uh, the, the, it fell apart. I had a really big falling out with one of the people in the group. Um, one of the leaders, we, we all had a big following out, falling out with her. Um, I am still friends with one of them, well, several of them that were in the group, but especially one of them that was our high priest. He's actually the one that married me and Nathan at our wedding. Yeah. But it was a non like religious wedding, but yeah, like, I think I was kind of distant. It was kind of distant 
disillusioned by it at the end. You know, I, I just kind of found it like, God, there's shitty people everywhere. There's also <laughs> shitty people here. Uh, and so as a result, like it kind of, my, my leaving that group, it, it kind of tainted my, my taste for neopaganism. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that I think neopaganism is bulk, like I, I or bunk. I, I think that there, I have a lot of friends that still are, are devoutly practicing and I think it's beautiful. And, but I kind of shelve it along with the other religions now where I'm like, I'm definitely agnostic. I don't have a problem believing in a higher being or higher beings that are completely beyond our ability to understand as human beings, as these limited creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think they care about us and they don't care what I do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, kind of a, a kind of agnosticism, I guess you could say. It sounds to me like you got what you needed from this during that phase of your life and you've kept what you needed with you as you've moved forward, which is the best way to do exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Feel ready to move on? Yeah, I think so. Speaking of apocalypticism. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We're about to get into some real heady stuff. What's the next track? <laughs> Alrighty. So the next track is Sunset by Current 93. Okay. Here comes a clip. Gosh, here we go. I did not see chalice or grail God wasn't there in the darkness the curtain tear so this was new to me so fill me in about what I listened to (laughs) oh lordy (laughs) so current 93 are this uh, I don't even know how to describe them. Um, they're a, an experimental folk-ish band from the UK. Um, the band's headed by David Tibet, who is this brilliant lyricist, poet, musician, and a rotating cast of musicians and talent that work with him. I think every album has somebody different on it. Um, and there are a lot of albums. They have done music that's across, I think, the whole spectrum with the exception of maybe country and rap. They've done a lot of electronic stuff, stuff that almost sounds metal. They've done more lyrical folksy stuff. Uh, They've done everything. And a lot of their music is incredibly beautiful. A lot of their music is also really inaccessible or difficult to listen to because it's not built off of sort of what we're used to hearing on the radio. They have a lot of weird albums and weird music judging from this is the only song of theirs i've heard but uh and you're what you said they're very stylistically diverse but the guy's voice is very expressive yes but kind of difficult yes it is it is he's got this very sing-songy voice that almost sounds like he's trying to gosh i don't know it's almost childlike sometimes the way he sings it reminds me of like a little kid singing hmm. something but not quite having the the melody right um it is a he has a very difficult but also beautiful voice to listen to a lot of his things wind up sounding more like spoken word than they are lyrics a lot of their their music is very much an acquired taste including david tibet's voice the, i chose this song in particular because it's one of their most it's one of their more accessible songs it's much more melodic it has a vocal track that you can kind of go along with that that's a lot easier to to understand than perhaps other stuff and again this is another one of those songs where i could have put the entire album on here um but this was i think the best 
one from the album that I that I think listeners would at least be able to hear and and, and relate to. So, you and I share another thing, including teenage neo-paganism. <laughs> we also are both survivors slash refugees of PhD programs. Yes. <laughs> and in the list of songs you sent me, you uh, notated that this was to do with grad school for oh, you. Oh, goodness. Yes, it is. So, <laughs> this uh, is also, I think, a bit of my undergraduate as well, too. Fair enough. But uh, this kind of leads me to the question, how was academia for you? <laughs> well, let me tell you, Michael. <laughs> Academia was terrible, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but it was also really wonderful. I didn't go to university right out of high school. A lot of my friends went. When I was in high school, I was in the gifted program. So everybody knew that I was really smart, but I didn't quite see the point of university because, again, I hadn't, nobody in my family had been to university. I mean, hardly anyone in my family had graduated high school, let alone like done secondary education. So I didn't really see it, even though I had friends going to university. And so after grad or after uh, high school, a lot of my friends kind of like left the city because they were going to Queens or they were going to Western or they were going to like any other number of schools around around uh, the country. So I, that's when I kind of fell into neo-paganism and wound up making this other group of friends because my friends from high school were mostly like you know, hours away from me. So they also introduced me to this band. Um, One of my best friends in particular is actually personally friends with David Tibet. And so she has sent me and made me listen to a lot of their music. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and so I attribute this entirely to that, to that group. So when I did go to university, I went back at 24. Immediately, I I thought I was going to go back and do uh, English, do an English degree because I was in love with the Brontes. And I thought I was going to be like a Charlotte Bronte scholar. And that was all I wanted to do. But then I got there and I realized, man, this is actually ruining reading literature for me. I do not like studying literature. And I wound up doing um, more history and religion. Through doing that, I kind of developed this love affair with Catholicism. And I was kind of like an anthropologist approaching it because I had been raised very atheist in a family that I guess was sort of nominally Anglican. But I had no experience with Catholicism. The only experience I had with it was a guy I went to high school with and kind of dated for a bit was was Catholic. And I didn't I wasn't even sure what that meant. I was like, is that is that like Jewish? (laughs) That was because, you know, that was the only other religion that I was really familiar with. Yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. Yeah. So I, I wasn't until I got to university and I started taking medieval history courses that I got to know what Catholicism was. And I was like, that was when I made the connection. Like, gosh, this is a lot like paganism. And so I had this kind of anthropological approach to it that I had no previous knowledge of it. And so I was coming as this total outsider to the study of it. And I wound up falling in love with it. And that's what I ended up doing is I ended up doing medieval studies. And I really was in love with uh, studying both heresy and apocalypticism. Mm. So I enjoyed those parts of the of the church and of church history that were kind of jagged and hard to deal with. Um, heresy in particular, because I liked looking at the outcasts of society and, and understanding who they were underneath what they were being painted as. And then apocalypticism, just because like, it's so badass, like it's so <laughs> cool, right? Um, and like, I loved, like when I was teenager, I loved um, like Independence Day because I loved the idea of the earth is now destroyed. What happens in the moments after civilization collapses? What are you doing for the days and weeks after? All systems are broken. Yeah, exactly. Now, what do we do? Um, So I was drawn almost immediately to like apocalyptic 
folklore, apocalyptic visions and stuff. Um, I I really love the Franciscans. There was this one friend, if I remember correctly, there was this one Franciscan heresy that had to do with the end of the world and how it was going to be foretold by this new order of monks rising who, oh, they're the Franciscans. We're here to end the world and stuff. It was heretical and all this stuff. I could go on forever about that. So I was really drawn to that kind of stuff when I was doing my studies. And this song, this album came out, I think in 2006, when I was about in my second or third year of university. And it was around that time that I took my first course on apocalypticism. And what this entire album is, is it's David Tibet's post-apocalyptic vision of the world ending. It is based on a dream that he has. It's off an album called Black Ships Ate the Sky. And in part of his vision, his dream that he had about the apocalypse, he dreamt that a fleet of black ships would appear in the sky and block out the sun. This song in particular is sort of, uh, it's the second song on the album, and it's a very gentle introduction to an album that slowly descends into this dissonant kind of chaos before winding up on this very soft, melodic hymn at the very end. Gosh, was that ever deep and meaningful for me when I was taking an apocalypticism course. (laughs) Because at the time, you know, we were reading in this course, we were reading the book of Revelation and we were dissecting all of the imagery in it. And I was listening to this album at the same time. And I remember thinking I was so brilliant because I understood the references because a lot of David Tibet's poetry is very dense, very personal, and isn't necessarily accessible to someone who doesn't know the backstory. So a lot of the lyrics of this song, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea what's going on in most current 93 songs, but I see enough in it to recognize the apocalyptic elements in it that are that are quite wonderful. And so this song for me was like, Oh, it was like getting my apocalyptic rocks off in a way. <laughs> and uh, and it was just absolutely, absolutely lovely to listen to. Mm-hmm. On the other side, I listened to this a lot in grad school as well. And grad school is also a little bit apocalyptic for the soul and for the mind. This song is also kind of the other side of academia, which is painful and soul destroying. And you're seeing everything you love ripped up to shreds. Yeah. You love this thing so much, let's ruin it. If you like cigarettes so much, why don't you smoke the whole pack? That kind of feeling. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. You got into grad school. Uh, What was your intent when you were like, I mean, I know for me, when I was like, I'm going to go to do a PhD, I was like, I'm going to become a college professor. Uh, Was that your thought or... Yeah, I think that kind of was. I thought, I thought, gosh, I everyone's always told me, oh, you'd be such a good teacher. Um... Whenever I had to do those uh, personality tests in school that would like try to set you up um, on like a career trajectory, it always told me you have to be a teacher or a counselor. It's going to be for you. So I kind of felt obligated to go that route. Right. Um, I also really liked what I was studying. Um, I was looking in particular at at female um, religious communities that were sort of on the borderline of heresy. And I, I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. But as I started going through it, there were a lot of things about grad school that I hated. Um, As you know, um, U of T has uh, some pretty rigorous language exams. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always enjoyed languages. Um, 
you know, I, I read French from a very young age. Um, I enjoyed learning German and uh, we had to learn a lot of Latin and Latin is really painful. And it became more and more painful in grad school for me when we had to sort of perform Latin readings for the rest of the class and then be humiliated about it Oof. and have our marks sort of put out there for the world to see. And after I failed the PhD Latin exam about three times, I realized that I could not take that exam anymore. <laughs> I was mm -hmm. done with it. Mm -hmm. I think I think I also there was a part of me that that lacked the confidence to think that I was actually smart enough. Um, a lot of that imposter syndrome, I think that everybody goes through, but feels makes you feel like you're the only person in the world that experiences it. And this album kind of feels like that to me. I know that it's full of deep meaning and deep thoughts and symbolism if you know where to look, but it's also complete gibberish to me in parts. I have no idea what's going on in this song, but gosh, do I ever like it. <laughs> I think there's also something very valuable at learning to become comfortable with the fact that you're not going to understand everything and that's okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, as exactly. a general life skill. Like yeah. there are things that are beyond my understanding. That's fine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> maybe so many other people can understand them and maybe I will come to understand them, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life trying to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think Oh, well, you can tell me this is a theory. Uh, the fact that you were 24 when you started your undergraduate probably allowed you to pull the plug on what was a toxic environment for you a lot more quickly than others, because you knew that there was life outside of the university. And this wasn't sort of a track that you've been on since you were five years old. You've just been in school. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In a big way. I had I had already lived on my own. I had I moved out at 17 and I had a full time job. I mean, I had a career before I went back. Well, not a career, but, you know, I worked uh, I worked worked at first in animal medicine and then was in customer service for a number of years. And it was when I got laid off from that job that I decided, okay, now's the chance I can do it. And um, so I already had a, I already had a taste for the outside life. By the time I was in my second year of my PhD, um, I was TAing for a fantastic course called Gender in African History. Mm. Uh, I had no African history at all going into it, but I did a lot of gender studies and, you know, that was kind of my area. So that's why they hired me for this course, because at least I could talk to gender theory. And then it was just a matter of, you know, reading, um, reading, bringing the history and reading yeah. up on the history and bringing it in. Keeping ahead of the class in the readings. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And oh, boy, did I learn a lot. It was my first time that I'd spent a lot of time with sort of like post-colonial theories and stuff. It was the first time I'd even spent time with theory, period. And because you don't do a lot of that in history, at least not until you get much more advanced. And the professor I worked with was phenomenal. I adore her and I would do anything in the world for her because she's magnificent. And in my second year, she actually got me sort of hired as a TA for this other course that she was doing during which they were going to take uh, a group of about, I think, 10 or 12 students to Uganda Ooh. to study women in politics and women in sort of high power jobs in Africa. So I had like an all expenses paid trip to Uganda for two weeks in the wow. second year of my PhD. And that changed my life. Like that changed everything. I think you need to tell me more about this. Oh goodness! <laughs> so we we went there, and I was I was effectively I was the TA, so I was kind of like I was helping her organize the the stuff in the trip, um, helping organize the students and stuff, and also helping them develop interview questions for the the people that we were interviewing. 
we stayed mostly around Kampala, which is the capital city. It's on Lake Victoria. Um, we stayed in this sort of dorm that was on this this site called Mild May, which is an HIV AIDS research and treatment center. And they have these dormitories that you can rent. Um, and a lot of people from East Africa will stay there like for conferences and stuff. Um, so we ate what the local people were eating. We did what they were doing and stuff. And it was great. It was not like a, I went to Africa on a safari and then built a school for kids or something. It was, we went there to work on research. And when I was there, I was just, I was like, God, you need money to go to places like this. Like, not only was I having this incredible cultural experience, I was also, it was my first time on an airplane. I'd never been on an airplane to that point. Um, Cause I grew up, my family was very working class and we never went on airplanes. So I, it was my first time on an airplane. It was my first time being in a foreign country that wasn't like Buffalo, New York. And it was just, it was awesome. And I remember got, I got home and that was when everything fell out from under me in terms of like my desire to do academic work. I was like, I can't go back to this now. I don't want to go back to this. I want to have money and travel and do things. You can't put yourself back in that small box. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't. I, like, I remember getting back to my Carol. I was lucky and I had a Carol in my second year in the library. And I remember going back to my Carol and just being like, I don't want to read Latin. Like, I don't even want to do this anymore. I want to have money. Like, I want to go do shit. Like, this is stupid. Why am I here? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but of course, I struggled with it a lot. I think because I'm a Taurus and Tauruses, we don't tend to give up on things easy. We're like incredibly stubborn. Yep. And I'm not only am I a Taurus, but like half my chart is like in, in, the, in, like Capricorn. Oh, wow. So it's, it's like, I, I get, I, I'm like a pit bull. Like, I get an idea and that's it. Like, I'm going to stick to it until it kills me. And I will not, I will sink my teeth into it and I will not let go until you break my jaw, basically. <laughs> and so I was like, no, I'm going to, I have to keep doing it. I'm on this path. I have to keep doing it. Um, and then I was like, well, at the very least, I need to finish the semester. I need to get my papers done, write my articles, do whatever and stuff. And a friend of mine, the friend who is the huge current 93 fan and has like all their stuff and has been thanked on their albums, she said to me, you know, you don't have to go back. And I was like, well, yeah, but I have papers due. She's like, you don't have to write the papers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, I do. I said I was going to write the papers. She's like, no, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do any of this. You can just leave. Yeah. And so I effectively just ghosted grad school. It's, it's not like you're a nurse that's not showing up for her shift. Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And like literally nothing changed. Yep. The only thing that changed was I was significantly less stressed out. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it was also terrifying too, because when I was in grad school, at least I knew I had money coming from somewhere. And my husband at the time, um, we were married by that point, he wasn't making a lot of money either. So it's not like he could just support two of us in our little like one bedroom apartment. Um, so I was really anxious about that too, because at least grad school, I knew I was getting, you know, my $15,000 a year to live on and pay tuition from. And I was like, I'm, are they going to make me pay it back? And she's like, no. And I was like, really? Like, but I, I'm going to fail these courses if I don't hand them in. She's like, no, you just leave. That's it. You leave. And so I left. And I got incredibly lucky that I wound up landing a job, uh, like within days, I landed a really good job, which I'm still working today. So, you know, mine is, is not uh, a tale to say like, look, anyone can do it. It was, I got really lucky. Uh, to like, to this day, I still have nightmares that I'm back in grad school and I haven't finished those, those papers. <laughs> 
They're haunting you. And they're going to kick me out and they're going to take all my money away from me. On the whole, my God, my life is much better since I've left grad school. That's wonderful to hear. So what's the last song we have? So the last song we have is R.E.D. by A Tribe Called Red. No suckers allowed to break bread or asunder. The daylight, lightning, and the thunder. Sun, moon, stars, and the hunger. Abundance in bundles. Blessings in troubles. Towers and tunnels. Views and valleys. Waves and peaks. Streets you from sun. Planet so um, why don't you tell me uh, why we've arrived at this song here? I, I kind of came late to hip hop and rap. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't raised around it, and a lot of my friends didn't didn't listen to it. Most of them were, you know, and I was into Nine Inch Nails, so like, um, it's not a quick transition from Nine Inch Nails to rap. It's sort of a, it's the very separate genres. But I came into it because a lot of the people that I work with would would listening to a lot of rap, and and it was sort of all around me uh, within the past like decade. And um, so I've got to start with who a tribe called Red are. Uh, they're uh, an indigenous electronic group. They take a lot of traditional rhythms and songs uh, and put them to electronic beats. And they are fantastic. They've won Grammys. They tour all over the place. And not only do they tour like in major cities, they tour on reserves, which is a big deal. Um, and they they sell out everywhere they go. They're absolutely phenomenal. They've been, uh, I think they've been on quite a few things. They've been on like a, a bunch of shows and stuff like that. Commercials are starting to pick up their music and stuff like that, if I believe. Um, I work in advertising and I've actually seen a piece of creative where they wanted to use one of their songs for it. And it was definitely not a native piece of advertising. This song in particular is interesting. It comes off of their album um, that came out a few years ago called uh, The Hallucination um, or The Hallucination, which they've got some clever wordplay there. The main artist on the track who is doing the lyrics at the beginning is uh, Yasin Bey. Uh, Hip-hop fans probably know him uh, best as Most Deaf. To work with an artist like that, that's really big, like for this Canadian Indigenous group to work with like this big name hip-hop guy is kind of, I think, is really cool. So he does he does most of the lyrics. Um, and then the second artist on it, I don't really know very well, but he also has some really great lyrics on it. Uh, the two guys are named, they're both named Yassine, actually. Gosh, I don't even know where to start with this song. It's so good. This is rap music and it is indigenous contemporary culture. So um, you've spoken about how with your, you know, the way you were raised and the, your background, rap wasn't really a thing you encountered until you were older. Um, but do you have a relationship with indigenous culture and communities? Yeah, I do. Um, my father, my biological father was Métis, um, Métis and French Canadian. He was Scotch Métis, which is much different than the French Métis. Mm-hmm. American listeners might not know what Métis means. Yeah, Métis is uh, a distinct Indigenous culture that came out of the fur trade in North America. There were two big fur trading companies in North America for like the first like 300 years. Uh, one was the Hudson's Bay Company, which primarily employed uh, Scottish and English employees, some some Irish, mostly Sc- Scottish. And then there was the Northwest Company, which was mostly French Canadian. And uh, Métis are born, the, the culture was born out of the marriage between the male European workers and um, indigenous women from communities that they were working in. Uh, They would have what they would call country marriages. A a man who was born in Scotland, say, would be working in a a fur trade uh, post. 
and would wind up falling in love with and, and or in some cases given um, an indigenous woman to live with. And, you know, they might not be married in, in a church, but they would have what they would call these country wives. Uh, it's an interesting and difficult history. Um, but essentially what happened is you wound up getting these um, people that worked and lived in and around fur trade posts that were both indigenous and European that had sort of a mixture of both cultures. Uh, They're being raised by the women. So they were, you know, maybe learning to speak indigenous languages and indigenous culture, but they were also working for the fur trade posts and also like into European culture as well. And the Métis identity came out of that. As as these so-called mixed blood or Métis people left the fur trade, they were given scrip for land in Manitoba and sometimes I think in Alberta too, um, and some of them in Northern Ontario as well. And so you wound up getting these like communities of these Métis living together and um, they eventually over time developed their own culture. And so today they're considered uh, one of Canada's unique Indigenous identities, uh, along with uh, the First Nations and Inuit. Yes. Thank you for uh, explaining the term. Um, so your father was Métis. Yes. Yeah, so my father was Métis. Um, his, his, some of his ancestors were Scottish and, that came over and worked in Moose Factory and, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, one of his ancestors was, I think, the chief factor at Moose Factory for a number of years. He had a wife who was OG Cree and um, his son had a wife who was Algonquin. They eventually moved down to the Ottawa Valley area near Golden Lake, which is sort of about... About 45 minutes outside of Renfrew Armprior area, and very close to Algonquin Park. Um, if anyone knows any of the the um, rivers in that area, it was along the Bonchere River, which goes into Algonquin Park and eventually into the Ottawa Valley or into the Ottawa River. It's uh, it's a difficult history. There's a lot of contention about whether. Métis and Ontario count as being Métis, and I'm not going to get into those politics. But um, you know, he did uh, he did identify Métis um, and French Canadian as well. His his mother's heritage was French Canadian and Métis. Hmm. So when you, I mean, you were four, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, when when he, your mother and your biological father um, separated. Um, so I'm not sure what part your Métis heritage might have had after that. But when you reconnected with him, did you also reconnect with this aspect of your family's past? Yeah, I've tried. Um, it was not a part of my life while he was not in my life. Um, I didn't even know that he was Indigenous until I reached, like, I think high school. Um, mm. To be honest, in the in the eighties, uh, the education system was didn't have a great record when it come when it came to teaching Indigenous history. So I actually thought that uh, Indigenous people in Canada were just extinct or wow. somehow completely assimilated. I, I had yeah. no idea that they even really existed when I was like eight, nine, ten. Oh, sure, sure. Or so I mean, I'm not wowing at you. I'm like, yeah. that's I'm just that was wowing. the kind of education. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was the yeah. kind of education. Um, ironically, my my husband, who who is not remotely Indigenous, his mother did her master's degree on Emily Carr, and she worked and she did a lot of Indigenous artwork as well, and her stuff on Emily. Emily Carr had to do with Emily Carr's influences from Indigenous art. And so Nathan tells me about like, 
how his sister would go to like girl guides and they would have to make, um, they would have to each choose an Indian tribe to be, and then make a totem pole and his sister correcting them and saying, um, the Ojibwe don't have totem poles. Like that's a West coast thing. So like, at least they were getting something of education, but like (laughs) really like poor education. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of pen pan north american like oh all all native people in north america from florida to alaska are the same yeah they all hunt buffalo (laughs) (laughs) all of them all of them they all have teepees yes uh, yeah um ironically around the time that my mom started saying well you know your dad was part indigenous um was around the time that i think dances with wolves came out and oh my god i loved that movie so much (laughs) so much i loved that movie um i understand now how problematic that movie is but my Mm -hmm. goodness i loved that movie (laughs) it sounds like you were just starved for anything um to do with this <laughs> yeah i was and like i kind of wonder if that was why like some subconscious part of me why that i was sort of drawn to like neo-paganism polytheism and stuff like that too um i wonder if there was like some i don't know genetic thing inside me that needed it or something but um yeah so it's it's been it's been a strange journey because like on the one hand there's a lot of politics about blood quantum and stuff like that that i'm not going to get into um my my biological father is very estranged from much of his family. Um, he did not have a relationship with his mother at all, like for his adult life. Um, they spoke to each other, got together occasionally, but he doesn't have a great deal of fondness for her. And I think that family is also very divorced from their indigenous roots, partly because um, our ancestors effectively had to anglicize to survive. And also, I think partly because some of our ancestors were were sort of higher up in the HBC, and so they could send their kids to England to be educated. And so they were sort of more forcefully anglicized than I think a lot of other Métis families. So it's hard to describe that side of the family as being very Métis, but they were very conscious of their Indigenous roots. And, you know, there weren't, I don't know what there was in terms of a continuity of practice, but I do know that there was something there in the back of their minds about, like, we do have Indigenous heritage. This is somehow important to us, but we don't know how. So when you first encountered a tribe called Red, like, they make very exciting and interesting electronic uh, and rap music, uh, like, combining disparate elements in a way that anyone who appreciates music will enjoy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, did the fact that they were... I mean, I was going to say they wear their indigeneity on their sleeve, but it's much more than that. Like, like, oh gosh, they don't wear it on their sleeve. They, they, it's, it's all. It's the whole coat. Like, it's the whole outfit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's their, their. They are like twenty four seven regalia almost, even mm-hmm. if they're just wearing t shirt and jeans. Yep. Um, and um, they, they very strongly promote um, indigeneity and indigenous artists. Um, most of their albums, their, their album Hallucination, uh, had a whole bunch of, uh, indigenous artists on it, um, both for like spoken word poetry and even the very problematic Joseph Boyden was on there, Mm -hmm. which for non-Canadian listeners is a indigenous author who claimed indigeneity without actually having provable indigenous roots. So there's a lot of, difficult identity politics in that. Um, but um, they they made it cool to be Indigenous, to, to non-Indigenous folk. They made it cool. I mean, I, I'm very much feeling my whiteness here. So I have the sort of outsider's <laughs> appreciation, but 
they are very very fucking cool <laughs> like, they're so fucking cool yeah yeah, yeah they are the, awesome. uh, the collaboration with tanya chagak on hallucination is like one of my favorite things it's so divine isn't it mm-hmm. like uh i could have picked so many tracks off this album yeah um i picked this one in particular because i like hip-hop and um but yeah that one uh tanya chagak is just she's like otherworldly she's so incredible yeah she's phenomenal i mean yeah the whole album is top i strongly recommend it yeah yeah Um, it's really good yeah so was there anything else you wanted to talk about with in terms of this or yeah um this one and gosh i there's so much i could talk about um this one has sort of a, a cry both for indigenous um, resurgence, but also environmentalism. Um, I think that environmentalism and indigenous identity have been always been strongly tied together. Um, as you can even see historically, like things such as Standing Rock in, in the Dakotas trying to protect their land basically from this oil pipeline going through it that was diverted away from a white community so it wouldn't pollute the white community and diverted right through um, these Dakota lands. And um, it's still the fight is still ongoing with that. Um, that's just one of the the more recent examples. Um, there's also uh, Bear Island in Tomogamy, um, where they stood up for the the giant forest of Tomogamy. Tomogamy is this is this incredible area in northern Ontario, about about an hour and a half north of North Bay, which has some of the the only virgin old growth forest in in Ontario, because in Ontario has been fairly cleanly um, uh, harvested in terms of wood. Um, most of most of uh, Ontario has has been completely clear cut at some point, and so this has some of the oldest standing. Uh, forest in in Ontario, and in, it was an Indigenous people that stood up and and fought to protect that. Um, some of the lyrics here are are very poignantly environmental. So one of them is emergency on planet Earth. The currency is murder. You a man of worth, and that's interesting because it's it talks about how everything we we have, everything that from the computer that we're recording this on to like the parts of the microphone to even like this notepad that's in front of me to the water I'm drinking. There's a price of blood on all of this. I mean, the most obvious example is, you know, children in Africa being forced to mine in in these horrible conditions to pull out rare minerals that Apple can then use to make a MacBook or um, Nestle buying fresh water while denying it to people that have no drinking water on reserves. Um, there's uh, there's so much blood wrapped up in the things that we enjoy every day. And um, it's something I think that people need to think more about. Not necessarily something that has like an instant solution, but all of us have paid in murder. And when he says, you a man of worth, it means, you know, have you paid in murder? How much murder have you paid in? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yes, uh, it does. It's not easy because it's not a, there's not a simple solution or simple answer to these concerns. 
Well, I mean, there are some obvious things like maybe don't put a pipeline through an indigenous community that's going to wreck their health and yeah, their yeah. land. Like that's simple, but like yeah. other things like I do need to eat and I would like to, you know, participate in my culture. Like Yeah. So, like, and like, yeah. you know, for the for the first time in the world history, famine is at a low. I mean, this is the first time we've been able to feed, but famine is still there. And yeah. in some places it's worse than it has ever been. Mm-hmm. We we have enough wealth that no one need experience want and so many do. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And um so it's it's like a lot of good hip hop. It pushes that message, it pushes those buttons, it says things that are meant to make you think, that are meant to be, I think, slightly painful to talk about, um, and sort of force you to listen to it. That seems like a good note to end things on. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great. So if listeners wanted to get in touch with you to, you know, discuss anything that came up today or just say hi, is there any good way to do that? Yeah, um, they can reach me on my Twitter, which is Vanished Faces. And uh, most of my Twitter is either retweeting cat memes or yelling at Donald Trump um, <laughs> and occasionally bits of indigenous news on there. Yeah. So that sounds like a good mix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again for being my guest. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was All a right. pleasure. Take care. Many thanks to Melissa for sharing her life and music with us. This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Check out all of our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 25. That's a lot. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at EarlKing, E-R-L-K-I-N-G. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes. That apparently really helps a lot with the mysterious magic of algorithms. Or, you know, you can simply tell your friends about it. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. I'll see you next time.